I grew up on what could be described as a large petting zoo <laughs> or the Noah's Ark of East Texas. I grew up on 10 acres just outside of Eustis, Texas, about 50 miles southeast of Dallas. And me and our family, had we had at least two of every kind of farm animal, animal you can imagine. We had cows, horses, pigs, chickens, turkeys, geese, ducks, donkeys, goats, sheep, rabbits, dogs, cats, and guineas. Anybody know what a guinea is? It's a bird, very annoying bird. My brothers and I had a lot of fun with some of these animals, especially the goats and sheep. When you don't have cable TV or video games, you have to get creative for entertainment. So sometimes my brothers and I would go out into the small pasture behind our house and have a um, goat rodeo. Don't judge me, okay? All you city folks. And what we would do is see who could stay on the goats or the sheep the longest. My brother Josh was the best. Josh could stay on way longer than any of us. Um, the sheep weren't usually as fun to ride, though, because they'd usually just sit there when she got on their backs and just look kind of, you know, dazed and confused. But one time, unpredictably, my brother Josh jumped on this sheep, <laughs> and the sheep darted off at a dead sprint. <laughs> my brother Josh thankfully had a handful of wool in, in each hand. He was hanging on for dear life, and the sheep was going straight towards a fence, Thankfully, though, before he went into the fence, uh, Josh jumped off and, and landed gracefully. <laughs> I don't remember what happened to the sheep, but eventually became a jacket or something. <laughs> you see, sheep are like that. Sheep are unpredictable creatures. They're erratic. They're erratic. They're unpredictable. They're often a danger to themselves and to those who choose to ride them. Sheep are messy, stinky. And sheep, frankly, aren't the most intelligent uh, mammals in the animal kingdom. If you've been around sheep at any length, you know that they are not the most intelligent mammals in the animal kingdom. And if you've read the Bible at any length, you know that in many places, God describes his people as none other than sheep. <laughs> How's your self-esteem doing so far? <laughs> this isn't a flattering description. I, I think it's an accurate one, though, because we are, let's just be honest, we are unstable and erratic creatures. We're prone to hurt ourselves. We're not as smart as we think we are. Our lives are messy and broken and stinky. As the hymn writer says, we're prone to wonder, prone to leave the God we love. Because we're sheep, we're prone to wonder. And because we're sheep, we need shepherds. Amazingly, throughout the Bible, God describes himself as our shepherd. I read Psalm 23.1 at the beginning of the service. The Lord is my shepherd. Then in Ezekiel 34, 15, the Lord says, I myself will be the shepherd of my sheep. Jesus comes along and says in John 10, 11, I am the good shepherd. Peter calls Jesus the chief shepherd in 1 Peter 5, 4. 
like any good shepherd, the Son of God, the second person of the Trinity, came to his sheep and wasn't afraid to get his hands dirty. He didn't just come to ride his sheep for entertainment and fun. He came to live with his sheep and ultimately die for his sheep. At the cost of his life, Jesus bought his broken and messy and rebellious and unstable lambs. He rescued his lambs from the slaughterhouse and carried them home to his house. The spotless lamb of God went to the slaughterhouse so that we could live in green pastures forever. So the Lord is our shepherd. But in grace and during the interim between Jesus' first coming and his second coming, the Lord has also given his church under shepherds. Shepherds who shepherd his people underneath his shepherding care. The New Testament calls these men elders, overseers, or pastors. The word pastor is literally the word shepherd. In Acts 20, 28, Paul says to the elders in Ephesus, pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock. There's that imagery again. The flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers. There's the word oversee. To shepherd, to pastor the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. God bought his sheep at the price of his son's blood and then calls certain men to shepherd them. God the Holy Spirit, this text says, has actually given the church shepherds to care for and feed and nurture and protect his sheep. Jesus shepherds his sheep through elders. This is very practical theology. As I said, the Bible talks about God is a shepherd. God is our shepherd, the shepherd of his people. But he doesn't leave that theology for us in some vague, abstract sense. Yes, of course, God cares about us more than any man ever could. He provides for us more than anyone ever could. But God, in a very practical, a practical tangible sense, has given his people flesh and blood, real, tangible, breathing shepherds that they can know and talk to and walk with, be fed by. Jesus shepherds us, his sheep, through the shepherds of a local church. He entrusts the life of his lambs into their care. Just as you wouldn't hire just anyone to watch your children, so Jesus was careful to teach his church that not just anyone could shepherd his his sheep. Not just anyone was eligible to watch his children while he was away. In other words, not just anyone can be a shepherd. Not just anyone can be an elder. Not just anyone can be an overseer of the flock of God. This morning we're continuing our series in the church and we're coming to the church's leaders. This week we're going to do the church's shepherds. Next week we'll do the church's servants or deacons and deaconesses. This week the church's shepherds. And I want to start by looking at the requirements for those who would serve the church as shepherds or elders or pastors or overseers. So find 1 Timothy chapter 3, verses 1 through 7. We'll look first at the requirements for those who serve as shepherds. Then after that, we'll discuss 
what these shepherds or elders are supposed to actually do. So 1 Timothy 3, 1 through 7, which by the way is paralleled by Titus in the book of Titus, just a couple of pages over, chapter 1, verses 5 through 9, I believe. We're only going to look at the 1 Timothy 3 passage. There's a lot of overlap, though we will glance briefly at Titus 1 in a moment. 1 Peter 3, 1 through 7, Paul is going to list out 15 qualifications, 15 requirements for those who would serve as shepherds of God's sheep. This list isn't exhaustive, but it does represent the bare minimum that must be present in the men who would serve as elders. Let's read this text and look at it a bit at a time. 1 Timothy 3, verse 1, the saying is trustworthy. If anyone aspires to the office of overseer, he desires a noble task. Therefore, an overseer must be above reproach, the husband of one wife, sober-minded, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, not a drunkard, not violent, but gentle, not quarrelsome, not a lover of money. He must manage his own household well and with all dignity keeping his children submissive. For if someone does not know how to manage his own household, how will he care for God's church? He must not be a recent convert or he may become puffed up with conceit and fall into the condemnation of the devil. Moreover, He must be well thought of by outsiders so that he may not fall into disgrace, into a snare of the devil. Let's go through these requirements a bit at a time. The first requirement for being a shepherd or being an overseer, being an elder, verse 1, is often overlooked, but it's there in verse 1. If anyone aspires to the office, the first requirement for an elder is that you have to want to be an elder. You have to desire, aspire to the office. Now the waters can get a little muddy here because motives and ambition are tricky things. Many times our motives are selfish rather than godly. My experience is often, I always struggle, like am I doing this for God or am I doing this for John? It usually feels like the little bit of both is happening. Y'all feel me on that? (laughs) I'm not sure we've ever done anything out of pure godly desire. We of course can strive for that and pray for that. Motivation can be tricky. Ambition is a tricky thing to discern. Some men will desire the office for the wrong reasons. Other men will think that wanting the office is inherently wrong in and of itself. This is why there should be an extensive interview process or onboarding process. It takes time to discern a man's true motives. Let me encourage the men in our church, by the way, to not be afraid or hesitant to express to me or Nick a desire to serve our church as a shepherd. Please come talk to us. We'd love to hear from you. Church members, if there's a man in our church that you think is growing, might be qualified and able to serve as an elder, please come and tell us that. I would argue that every man should desire desire to be the kind of man that Paul describes here in 1 Timothy 3. The only quality listed here that isn't required of every man is being able to teach. In other words, Professor D.A. Carson uh, points out that all of these uh, qualifications are required of all Christians, men and women, 
elsewhere in the New Testament, except being able to teach. So, in a very real sense, every man should desire or aspire to be like an elder. Because shepherding is a a noble task, an honorable work, Paul then says, you must be above reproach to be qualified for it. It's an honorable or noble work that you have to have a certain kind of character. This qualification is the umbrella that's over all the other qualifications. If you're above reproach, then you'll likely meet all these other qualifications that he goes on to list. Being above reproach means that if you were charged with wrongdoing, people would be shocked to find that out. It doesn't mean sinless perfection. Only one man ever achieved that. And none of, and none of the men in this church are that man. It does mean, as I said, that if wrongdoing were to be charged against this man, people would be shocked because he's above reproach. Not that he's above correction or above sin or above anyone. He's above reproach. Reproach would be something that would be out of, out of character, be unusual, be strange. This means that over time, a man has built a reputation of godliness and integrity. And this is the primary qualification because elders will be the primary examples of Jesus to the congregation. This, <laughs> this keeps me up at night. God's intent is for shepherds to show sheep what the great shepherd looks like. So the first qualification is that these guys have to be above reproach. Peter tells the elders to be examples to the flock, 1 Peter 5, 3. The elders will inevitably show the church what Jesus looks like. They'll be the ones setting the pace spiritually and morally in the congregation. A church will almost always go the way of its leaders. Hope you get a sense for how this sermon is so much for me. <laughs> but as I preach, please also know that this is for you. Because one day, you, church, will be tasked with affirming more elders. I might die tomorrow and you might have to find a new pastor. What kind of man should they be? Who should you be looking for? So this is very much for you, okay? For me and for you. The elders must be above reproach because they're the ones setting the pace in the congregation. They're the ones showing the congregation what it looks like tangibly, practically. What does following Jesus look like? Therefore, they must be above reproach. Next, Paul says the elders must be the husband of one wife, literally a one-woman man. A one-woman man. This has been variously interpreted. Some say it means that an elder must be married. But that doesn't work because Paul was single and he encouraged others to be single. Come on. <laughs> and he's the one writing this, so he doesn't mean you have to be married. Some have said that it simply forbids polygamy or that an elder can only have one wife at a time which seems out of sync with Scripture. Some say that it means that only those who've been married once are qualified. So if you're a widower who gets remarried, 
or if you've been divorced, then you're not qualified. Now, my position is that because this phrase is a bit ambiguous, its meaning is probably more broad than narrow. The broad meaning is that an elder must be morally and sexually pure. If an elder is married, there there to be no other women in his life. If he's single, there to be no women outside of friendships in his life. An elder must be pure when it comes to his sexuality. An elder doesn't have affairs, physical or emotional. He doesn't flirt. He doesn't look at pornography. He's faithful to God and to his wife if he has one. He's a one-woman man, meaning he's sexually chaste or pure. Now, the next three qualifications can easily be grouped together. An overseer, Paul says in verse 2, must be sober-minded, self-controlled, respectable. These three qualifications refer to a man's ability to master himself. Men who lead the church need to first be able to lead themselves. Being sober-minded means being clear-headed, being able to think about things clearly. A sober-minded man views everything through the lens, the clear lens of Scripture. He's sober in his thoughts, desires, and feelings. Everything gets tested through Scripture. He's not enamored with the latest theological fads, the changing trends of culture, and he's not overcome by the fear of man or pleasing people. He's sober-minded. And because he's able to think clearly about things... He's also able to live with self-control. He's able to control his wallet, his tongue, his emotions, his attitude. He's not controlled by his appetites. He's not given to excesses in food or drink or sleep. He's not, or work, I might add. He's not ruled by his anger. And this will inevitably produce a respectable man. A man who's sober-minded and self-controlled will be a respectable man. This kind of man is not perfect. I kind of wish Susie could preach this. (laughs) This kind of man is not perfect. He has failings that are deep and profound. But he's living a godly, ordered life. And he knows that his ability to master himself is only a result of the grace of God. Let me put it this way. An elder is a man who's been mastered by God. Not perfect, but he's been mastered. He's he's trying to come under daily, come under the master, Jesus Christ. Self-controlled, sober-minded, self-controlled, respectable. Then next, Paul says an elder must be hospitable, which literally means to love strangers. To love strangers. All of God's people are called to this. Romans 12, 13, 1 Peter 4, 9 commands all Christians to be hospitable. So elders are called to do what all Christians are called to do. But elders are specifically, strategically called to do this because hospitality is a way that the elders, the shepherds, get into the lives of the sheep. And notice that these qualifications are for the elders, not for the elders' wives. The elder must be proactive. The overseer, the shepherd, must be proactive and intentional in and moving towards people in the congregation rather than waiting on them to come to Him. Hospitality is going after others with the love and mercy of Jesus. The church should learn and follow, learn from and follow their example. The church 
should be doing hospitality, the elders must be doing hospitality. I'm going through these quickly, as you can tell. I don't have time to say everything that could be said. Next, we turn to the one qualification I will spend a little more time on. The one qualification that sets the elders apart from the deacons. The one thing elders must be able to do that isn't expected of all Christians. Paul says an elder must be able to teach. Able to teach. And there's a simple reason for this. God has always led his people through his word. When God brought the Israelites out of the... Uh, out of slavery in Egypt. He brought them to Mount Sinai. He gave them his word, not images. He gave Moses and them his word because his people would be led by his word. Jesus shows up on the earth announcing, proclaiming, preaching news. News. Yes, he did many wonderful things, but he also primarily focused on a proclamation of a message. A word from God. God gives His church elders who must speak the word of God to the people of God because the people of God won't live apart from the word of God. Elders will do lots of other things, but teaching is their primary responsibility and shouldn't be taken lightly. James 3.1 Not many of you should become teachers, my brothers, for you know that we who teach will be judged with greater strictness. Now, Titus 1, I mentioned Titus 1. If you'll flip a few pages to your right. Paul's letter to Titus helps us understand a little bit more of what Paul means by able to teach. So, Titus 1, 9. Um, in, in this section, this parallel section of qualifications for elders, Paul expands on this idea. Titus 1.9, he must be, uh, excuse me, he must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine and also to rebuke those who contradict it. An elder, an overseer, a shepherd should be able to give instruction in sound doctrine and correct with gentleness, Paul says several places, correct those who contradict. This is what able to teach means. So an elder must be a student of God's word. All Christians should read the Bible. Elders must be a student of God's word. Elders must be men who know their Bible and can communicate its truth and defend it against error. Does this mean that elders will be good public speakers? Does it mean they'll be great preachers and have public speaking abilities? No, I don't think it means that. Paul doesn't say that it does. A man who's able to explain the truths of Scripture in a one-on-one, small group setting is just as qualified as a man who's gifted to speak publicly. Think about how much teaching is done in the church foyer or over coffee or over text message or whatever. The qualification is that the man must be able to give instruction and correction in any setting, not necessarily a public setting like this. And this is, as I said, this is a life or death issue. This is a life or death issue for Jesus' sheep. If sheep aren't fed, they will become malnourished and eventually die. If they're fed bad food, they'll get sick. But if they're consistently fed the good food of the Word of God, they'll grow healthy and strong, they'll live longer and work harder. 
This is life or death. If a man is not able to teach, able to handle the word of God, it's not that he has to have PhDs and seminary training and all of that formal stuff. It's just that he has to know the word of God and be able to talk to someone about it in a way that helps them. That's all it means. You have to know the word of God and be able to communicate it to someone else in a helpful way. Now, the qualities in verse 2, back to 1 Timothy 3, qualify a man for the office of elder. The qualities of verse 3, when present, disqualify him. So verse 3, he should not be a drunkard, not violent, but gentle, not quarrelsome, not a lover of money. The first three of these negative qualities can be grouped together. Not a drunkard, not violent, but gentle, not quarrelsome. These are probably clumped together because where you find one, you'll usually find the others. The shepherds of God's people aren't controlled by alcohol or any other substance. They're not violent in their temperament, but gentle. They don't lose their minds every time they don't get their way. Gentleness must be their approach in every situation, especially moments of conflict. This was Jesus' style. He was gentle and lowly in heart, Matthew eleven twenty nine. 29. Gentleness is a fruit of the Spirit, Galatians 5, and 23. Elders must therefore be like their Lord and be men full of the Spirit as they lead the flock. They must not be ruled by their cravings or by their emotions. They should rather be gentle. They're to be men who don't like picking fights. They're not quarrelsome. They're not quarrelsome. An elder doesn't go looking for arguments. He doesn't play devil's advocate all the time. He knows which hills are worth dying on. Everything's not a life or death issue for the guy. He's not nitpicky and overly critical about everything. He's able to make distinctions between things that are more important and less important. And and express his opinions charitably. He's not quarrelsome. He's gentle. The next qualification there at the end of verse 3 is that he's not to be a lover of money. God's shepherds aren't in love with money. They're not greedy for gain, Titus 1.7 says. They refuse to make money in dishonest and greedy and shameful ways. Now we often, I don't think we in particular, but perhaps the American church in general, um, struggles with assuming that a person's wealth actually qualifies them for leadership. <laughs> we think like this, oh, you made a lot of money, therefore you'll be a great leader. That is not the way the Bible thinks. It's not the way God thinks. It's not a person's wealth that qualifies him. It's a man's attitude toward money. He should not be a lover of money. It's not about how much he possesses of it that qualifies or disqualifies him. It's how he views it. Elders are men who love God more than money. Men who give generously and sacrificially to the ministry of their local church and the spread of the gospel. Elders are men who are content with what they have, whether that's a little or a lot. Both rich men and poor men can be consumed with the love of money. But a man who aspires to the office of elder is free from it, no matter how much he makes a year. They're not to be lovers of money, rather they're to be lovers of God. Verses 4 and 5 go on to tell us, and interestingly, Paul spends two verses on this. These other qualifications are kind of just words and phrases. And then Paul drills down for a moment on this next one. 
Verse 4, he must manage his own household well, with all dignity, keeping his children submissive. For if someone does not know how to manage his own household, how will he care for God's church? In other words, men, if you're not taking care of your house, you can't take care of God's house. It's just what he says. God's house is too precious to him. His sheep are too precious. He will not let them be cared for by some guy who's not even taking care of his own house. This managing refers to caring for, nurturing, guiding a wife and children if he has them. If a man isn't nurturing his wife and kids, how will we think he'll treat God's children? If at home he's a tyrant, or an absentee landlord. If he's way too engaged, or like totally not engaged, he's not managing well. He's not managing well at home. Paul isn't calling for a perfect home or perfect children. Thank you, Jesus. Or none of us would be qualified. But how a prospective elder manages his home in the face, especially in the face of difficult circumstances, is what matters. He must manage his household well. Then verse 6 says that an elder must not be a recent convert. Must not be a recent convert. An elder must not be a new believer because new believers aren't ready to withstand the challenges that will come in pastoral ministry. And challenges will come. Paul doesn't give us an age requirement here. He doesn't give us the length of time someone should be a believer before they're eligible Uh, to be an elder. This is because age or length of time as a Christian doesn't equal spiritual maturity. In other words, there are many men who've been Christians for decades who lack the spiritual maturity to be elders. And then there are some men who've been Christians for only a short time who evidence remarkable maturity for their age. So there's not a time frame or age here because every person is going to be a little bit different. Discernment is needed here. What the church is looking for is men whose life shows conformity to Christ, fruit of the Spirit, humility. Men are actively seeking to put sin to death in their life. And a teachable, gentle spirit. These are signs of a spiritual maturity in a man. And they must be present present in a prospective elder. No matter their age or no matter how long they've been a Christian. Now the final qualification in verse 7 says he must be thought well of, he must be well thought of by outsiders so that he may not fall into disgrace into a snare of the devil. For those who would be elder, elders, it matters what unbelievers think about you. Interestingly, he doesn't just say um, people should know you, unbelievers should know you. He says that the elders should be well thought of by outsiders. I was convicted of this this week as I was hanging out with a neighbor. I was like, I need to make sure I'm loving this guy really well. Not not because I just want him to like me, you know, so I put on this face and try to be super spiritual. But no, he needs to see something of Christ in me so that if he and if and when he finds out that I'm a pastor in a church, he's not surprised. The simple reason that that Paul says this, he must be well thought of by outsiders, is that the opinion of people who know you outside the church will either confirm or deny who you profess to be inside the church. 
they'll know. <laughs> the people you work with, the people in your family, the people in your neighborhood, they know who you really are. Right? And so if they're going to be surprised when you tell them you're a pastor and you're a church, then you're probably not qualified to be an elder. You must be well thought of by outsiders. Now, we wrap this passage up. Did you notice that all of these qualifications, except being able to teach and not being a new convert, all of them are related to a man's character? Did you notice that? Not his abilities, not his money, not how long he's been in the church, not how passionate he is. No. Almost every single qualification is about a man's character. Character is everything in leadership. It seems that many Christians have forgotten this. Character is everything in leadership. God wants men who look and act and think and speak and love like Jesus leading his lambs. Jesus' sheep need shepherds who will show them Jesus, not perfectly, but faithfully. A church will go the way of its leaders. If the character of our leaders is off, even slightly, then over time, great damage can be done to a church. Because churches represent Jesus to the world, and churches go the way of their leaders, therefore leaders must look like Jesus. They must have a certain character, a certain moral fiber in them. So these are the requirements. This is what makes you eligible for the office of elder. Now, let's talk about what these elder shepherds are supposed to do. I'm going to give you three things and go through them rather quickly. First, what do elders do? Number one, elders feed the flock. Elders feed the flock. An elder is a teacher. First Timothy 3.2 says that an elder must be able to teach. Elders must be men who know the Bible and are able to teach it to others. The elders are also by extension, guardians of the teaching of the church. This doesn't mean that they they teach every class or preach every sermon. It does mean that they're the ones who are responsible for the teaching ministry of the church. So what's taught in training classes or community groups or men's ministry or women's ministry all fall under the auspices of the elders. Even the songs we sing during our worship service fall under the purview of the elders because music is one of the most important teaching tools that God gave to the church. You will remember the songs we sang this morning Way more than you'll remember what I'm saying right now. Amen? Amen. I hope that you're humming a mighty fortress later this week. (laughs) I do. I truly do. I hope that you're singing Come Thy Fount as you take a shower tomorrow morning. (laughs) You might not remember anything I'm saying right now. I get that. I've come to terms with that. You will remember songs. Songs are teaching tools. Therefore... Songs come under the purview of the elders in any, in any local church. So elders are teachers. Elders feed the flock, number one. Number two, elders govern the church. Feed the flock, govern the flock. Elders are the primary governing or decision-making group in the church. This is why one of the titles that the Holy Spirit picked for these guys is overseer. They oversee the life and affairs of the church. Not in some dictatorship or as micromanagers, but they oversee, they they look over all of the church. 
Paul says in 1 Timothy 5.17 that the elders have ruling responsibilities or governing responsibilities. Let the elders who rule well be considered worthy of double, double honor. Uh, elders who rule or govern so well should, basically he's saying should be paid. But notice that in passing he's like, hey, elders, by the way, who are ruling well get paid. This means that all elders are ruling. All elders are governing. governing. Elders are leading. They're giving direction to the church. This looks different in every church. But having elders who govern means that the decision-making processes of the church are streamlined. Instead of requiring a church vote or a committee decision on all the details of the church's life and ministry, the elders are entrusted with the authority to make those decisions. This is what Peter is referring to when he tells the elders to exercise oversight. 1 Peter 5.2 this, by the way, this streamlining of the decision-making process frees the church to do more of what the church is supposed to do. More ministry to one another. More disciple-making. It protects the unity of the church. It prevents church-wide squabbles and debates over non-essential matters. If you've worked at a company of any size, you understand that when decision-making processes are unclear or convoluted, things don't happen very well or very quickly. So God gives qualified men to his church to govern, rule, lead his church. To free the church up for the work of ministry. So elders feed, elders teach, elders govern. Third, elders shepherd. Elders shepherd. Acts twenty twenty eight. again, pay careful attention to yourselves. And to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to shepherd the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. In 1 Peter 5, 1-2, I exhort the elders to shepherd the flock of God that is among you. Shepherd really is the biblical portrait that summarizes all the other things that an elder does. A shepherd teaches and trains his sheep. A shepherd leads his sheep. A shepherd governs his sheep. Shepherds take care of the sheep. They make sure the sheep are fed, watered, healthy, and safe. This has massive implications for the ministry of elders. I want you to know that your elders are not a, a board of directors. Your elders are shepherds, primarily. It means that elders aren't men who sit around a room and just make decisions. That is part of it. But more fundamentally, the elders are shepherding. They're men who are involved in the life of the church, in the lives of the members of the church. Shepherds need to smell like the sheep. This is why I think one of the qualifications is hospitality. Shepherds need to smell like the sheep in, in order to help the sheep smell more like Jesus. Elders are shepherds. Not directors. Elders are shepherds, not administrators. Elders are shepherds. Not just guys who sit around and make decisions. Elders aren't just managers who work on the organization of the church. Elders are shepherds who work on the sanctification of the church. Now, as we're coming in for a landing, let me quickly address two practical questions. First, how many elders should a church have? How many elders should a church have? Well, the New Testament doesn't give us a specific number, but it does make it clear that each local church should have more than one elder. Acts 14, 23 says that Paul and Barnabas appointed elders, plural, in every church. Titus 1, 5, Paul instructs Titus to appoint elders, plural, in every town as I directed you. 
and I could give you a dozen other passages. The clear pattern of the New Testament is that each local church should have more than one elder, more than one shepherd. God in his wisdom has designed the church to be led by more than one man, and I am so grateful for Nick Sargine's ministry. You should be so grateful for our brother's ministry. He has shouldered the burden of shepherding this church with me, and he shouldered it well. Frankly, the burden is bigger than even two sets of shoulders, even in a small church like ours. Lord willing, in a few weeks at our next member meeting, we'll be nominating another man to join us in shepherding this church. God has great wisdom. In great wisdom, God gave his church more than one set of shoulders to carry the burden of his precious sheep. The burden they must, by the way, Pursue with joy. Because as Hebrews 13, 17 said, as Maddie read, if we don't do it with joy, then we don't help anybody. <laughs> second, second practical question. What's the relationship between the senior pastor and the elders? doesn't matter what you call the guy, senior pastor, lead pastor, or whatever. The guy who does most of the preaching and teaching, what's the relationship between that guy and the other elders? Well, the best way to describe it is a leader among equals. Leader among equals. All elders have the same amount of authority. Period. Now, there is biblical precedent for setting aside one of the elders, at least one. Support him financially and give him the primary teaching responsibility in the church. That's 1 Timothy 5, 17 and 18. Some elders will therefore be supported by the flock that they shepherd. Other elders, like Paul and Nick, work at another job. They make their living outside of the church. But all the elders have equal authority, whether they're paid or not. Jeremy Rennie provides a great illustration on this point. He says, quote, Volunteer firefighters face the same flames as the paid firefighters. All elders have the same authority, paid or not. Though the senior pastor may have certain delegated responsibilities, primarily the teaching and preaching of the Word of God. So the senior pastor is a leader among equals. In grace and at the cost of his life, Jesus came and bought his lambs. He rescued us from the slaughterhouse. He's carrying us home in his arms. In grace, Jesus came and died and then ascended to the Father. And then also in grace, this is Ephesians 4, also in grace, he gave the church the gifts of pastor teachers, also known as elders. In grace, Jesus gave his church shepherds who will feed, lead, and guide his lambs until they reach the green pastures of the kingdom of God. Elders are gifts of grace from the ascended Christ. That's humbling for the elders because we are not elders because we, <laughs> because we are somehow superior or better or more spiritual or any of that. We are elders because God decided that we should be. It's all of grace. The church is also given elders, though, as a gift of grace because, frankly... The church doesn't deserve to be protected. We haven't earned salvation or protection or feeding or teaching or caring. We haven't earned any of these things from God. But God in His grace, God, 
Because he loves his lambs so much, he will not let them starve to death. He will not let wolves come in and devour them. God gave his people shepherds because without shepherds, sheep will wander off. They'll starve. They'll get sick. They'll die. Let me summarize this way. I don't know if you've thought of it this way. But your elders are one of the primary means that God intends to keep you spiritually alive. Not because I'm great or your elders are great. Because this is God's plan. Your elders are one of God's means to keep his sheep alive and flourishing and growing and going. So thank God for your elders. Pray for your elders. Please pray. Please pray for your elders regularly. And as your elders follow Christ, seek to follow them in their Christ-likeness. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, please give us wisdom on how to take these truths and apply them. And also give us a sweet assurance of your grace. Your grace that has come to us through the good shepherd, Jesus Christ, Father, and the grace that has come to us through shepherds. None of your under-shepherds deserve to be under-shepherds. None of us deserve anything but hell. But in grace, you decided that your lambs should be cared for. Your lambs should be carried. Your lambs should be nurtured. Your lambs should be fed and watered and corrected and encouraged and prayed for. And you've given, to that end, you've given your lambs Shepherds, thank you. Thank you for the good gift of shepherds in your church. Please bless our shepherds. Please bless Nick and I and any other men who join us as shepherds, as under-shepherds. Please give us grace and strength and wisdom. Please help us to be the men we're supposed to be. Help us to meet these qualifications more and more and more every day. And Lord, may our church, as our church follows the direction of the elders, may our church look more and more like Jesus as we follow Jesus more and more. So that in all things, Jesus is honored. Jesus looks great. Jesus looks compelling. Jesus is magnified and glorified here in our, in our sheep pen, as it were. Good shepherd, Lord Jesus, please do this in our midst, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.